0: We have a really fun show for you today with both me and our producer, Trevor Chow-Fraser on the mic. But before we get to it, I want to tell you about a comment we got on our website, followed by a SoundCloud comment and an email and a phone call, all from one guy named Calvin. He was commenting on our episode about those guys that moved a whole apartment building down the street, because it turns out that in the picture we put up where the Mix the Mover guys are moving a butane sphere down the highway, if you look really closely, you can see Calvin's dad driving the truck. That phone call made me so happy because it totally validated this thing that I've always believed, which is that Let's Find Out is about helping Edmontonians see themselves in our city, sometimes literally. And I'm so proud of how we've been able to do that this season. I have gotten multiple texts about homemade Kalina jelly this year. I have heard from folks who care about farming and food telling me how happy they were to hear Dakota Cohen's farm featured on the show, who knew that he was a local celebrity. This is the last of eight episodes in this Humans and Nature series that are funded by Taproot Edmonton and the Edmonton Historical Board. If you have seen yourself in this work, if it has moved you or thrilled you or made you go, wow, we need you to show us how much it meant to you. You can support the Edmonton Historical Board by, well, by volunteering on the board or by following them on Facebook and learning how they work to protect Edmonton's built heritage through plaques and awards and historical designation. You can become a Taproot Edmonton member by going to taprootedmonton.ca, and you can sign up for Taproot's amazing suite of news roundups. And you can rate and review this podcast, Five Stars and Apple Podcasts, if you think we've earned it. Tell us what you like about the show. And thanks. On with the podcast. Yeah. yeah. So. If there's a, uh, any fisticuffs, though, let us know so we can get a camera out yeah, to yeah. Okay, cool, right? get video content also. I'm Chris Changin and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi, Wiskygon, on Treaty 6 territory. Each episode, we take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we help them find out the answers together. Uh, Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV, and uh, this particular episode is a game show, which we're very excited to try for the first time. <laughs> That was yay in the background from one of our contestants. We have quite an array of them. Um, so uh, this is part of our larger season exploring how humans and nature have kind of shaped each other in the city. And uh, one of the people that submitted a, a question um, this season um, had a question that I think inspires some like cool thoughts about how... Uh, We actually create Habitat in the City, intentionally or unintentionally. Um, So our question asker for this time um, is Marlena Wyman, Edmonton's current Historian Laureate. Uh, Marlena, would you mind introducing yourself and a little bit about your question?
1: Yes. Hi, Chris. I am, as you say, Marlena Wyman and Edmonton's fifth Historian Laureate, following you as Edmonton's fourth Historian Laureate. And I'm glad that you continued this podcast. It's great. And I am so thrilled tonight to be able to be the not-expert (laughs) and not have to answer the questions but to be able to judge other people kindly I promise (laughs) and uh, my question when we were at your live event I was wondering about our urban wildlife basically and have they adapted to city life so much that they're better off in the city would they be okay in the wild still or why are they with us why did they decide to live with us
0: So we thought that the best way to answer this question would be a competition, basically. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) There could only be one winner. um, To see maybe which species is... Most well adapted, which species can we make the best argument for it being endemic to Edmonton? That it wouldn't exist, perhaps, without the city itself being here. So we have uh, four contestants uh, representing uh, different species, and uh, we have we'll have three rounds uh, where each of them will first get to make a case for their species. Then marlene will get to ask some questions. Then they'll have uh, sort of a wrap up, uh, sudden death
2: round. Um, maybe not sudden death. Then we'll
0: have a wrap up round. <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: We have one of each species standing by in your kitchen ready to be killed (laughs) ready to be offed so you know (laughs) make your cases carefully
0: (laughs) you'll have to watch it being um and uh the winner today will not only claim the title of uh most endemic species but their advocate will win uh uh, this beautiful uh award number one trophy we have here um a uh map of shipwrecks of prince edward island
2: (laughs) i have that
0: you have this map i have that in my childhood home (laughs) it's a great map and also a 25 dollar gift card to the edmonton bookstore which is my favorite source for local history books for edmonton so if you could uh, introduce yourself and why you are the the best advocate for your species
3: All right. uh, So my name is Mike Jenkins. I'm the coordinator of pest management for the city of Edmonton. Uh, So I've been working for the city of Edmonton for about uh, 25 years or so, uh, basically stomping around in puddles, chasing bugs, uh, looking for weird frogs, stuff like that. Um, And I'm advocating for the West Edmonton Mall cockroach and uh, one of the reasons uh, I'm advocating for that is uh, our lab actually helped identify the cockroach uh, when it was uh, first brought into the city uh, many many years ago so uh, we actually still have the specimens in our lab and uh, so yeah that's where (laughs) we're going with this one
0: amazing this this was the (laughs) one that I just was dreaming that we could get on this panel hi
4: I'm Jim hole and I am Uh, defending the American elm tree, a very common tree here in the city. My background is uh, one of the family members from Holes Greenhouses, which is a large independent greenhouse operation, family operation, sold many trees over the years, many bedding plants, trees and all kinds of trees and shrubs, and um, had this gorgeous American elm in our front yard. So I've got a real deep passion for it, grew up with it. And I am a certified arborist as well. With uh, the International Society for Arboriculture, so I like plants and I love this tree.
5: And I'm Jocelyn Chudown. I'm the creator of ornithology at the Royal Alberta Museum. I'm interested in birds all my life, and interested in their fine colors and variety and so on. Um, I'm championing the uh, the black billed magpie, but the the ghost variant of it. And uh, and actually, I've been I've been at the museum now for some twenty five some years. and and actually, early on uh, I was I was approached by a Don Thomas with the Edmonton Journal and he were, he wanted to know about a, a magpie that he had found near the legislature in uh, uh, in the city and he wanted to know a little bit more about it now, actually my background and my training is in 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 pigmentation and coloration and that sort of thing so i have always been interested in in magpies and and in more recent years we've also collected some blood samples from magpies we've trapped trying to get to the gene actually that's responsible for that color difference so i think i can speak for the for the ghost magpie
6: (laughs) i'm dale guino the uh, director of wild rescue at wild north the uh Northern Alberta's Wildlife Rehabilitation Organization. For 35 years, I've worked in animal, animal advocacy, um, worked at zoos and wildlife centers across the country. Uh, and an interesting career, uh, spent 15 years as the country's uh, busiest wild animal trainer for film in Canada. So I've had the opportunity to work with every kind of creature you can imagine, uh, over six thousand species, hands-on. I uh, worked on some really crazy, popular children's television uh, shows. Some of your, some of our younger listeners here may be familiar with shows like Zaboomafoo and others, where I did all of the animal training work for. Um, I'm championing today the white-tailed prairie hare. And this is a a little enigmatic species that I think is widely overlooked uh, in favor of some of the more um, conventionally thought of as impressive creatures, you know, that that people often choose as their iconic symbol for their cities or uh, provinces or even country. But uh, the whitetail prairie hare, amazing creature. And we're going to tell you all about it coming up soon.
0: Excellent. And uh, listeners, if you really love Dale, uh, stay tuned to the podcast for more because he was on our Richie episode also talking about some cool wildlife. Well, he was physically present on the Richie Walk, and he will be on the podcast in future. Everything happens out of order in podcasts. All right. So we're going to move into round one. Uh, So, Marlena, um, who would you like to go first to advocate for their species?
1: I think we should go in the same order that people introduced themselves. So let's go cockroach.
3: All right. So... The West to Mall cockroach, um, it's an interesting story and there's a, now in, basically an urban legend uh, that the, the West to Mall has its own species of cockroach that lives within the mall um, and is found nowhere else in the world. That's not actually true. <gasps> um, yeah, <laughs> it'd be pretty amazing if it was, but, uh, yeah, unfortunately, it, uh, there's no unique species of cockroach in West Hampton Mall. So, uh, from that point, I probably already lose, uh, but <laughs> the story is actually pretty interesting in and of itself. Uh, when they first built the world water park, um, they brought in a lot of, uh, tropical plants from a lot of other areas. And of course it's much warmer much more humid in the water park, uh, than the, the rest of the, the mall itself even. Um, so it's a much different environment and different things can survive there than can survive anywhere else in Edmonton. And they brought in these cockroaches uh, that uh, the normal pest control companies weren't able to basically control and they couldn't figure out what was going on. Uh, they were having huge difficulties uh, uh, dealing with these cockroaches. And so they did eventually bring them to our lab to figure out uh what is going on here and we found these cockroaches we found we did find German cockroaches we found American cockroaches uh in the area but we also found uh in the water park these Australian cockroaches so this is not a species we normally find anywhere in Edmonton they're not a very common species around here at all Um, they are found in a few other places around the world and can become pests um But yeah, it looks very similar to the American cockroach. It's a little bit smaller, but has uh, flashy yellow stripes on its shoulders. And uh, one of uh, its sort of uh, notable features is it's also actually a strong flyer, which most cockroaches aren't. So uh, yeah, um, that becomes a much more noticeable trait when (laughs) (laughs) Uh, people are uh, trying to (laughs) deal with a cockroach issue. Uh, So once it was actually identified and uh, slightly different habits were uh, able to be taken into account for, the pest control companies were actually able to take control of that uh, particular problem. And uh, the source that it was coming in with these tropical plants, um, as they were no longer bringing in tropical plants, also died out. So, actually, West Hampton Mall doesn't even have the uh, <gasps> cockroaches anymore. <laughs> no! <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, pretty much as far as I know, the only specimens of those uh, West, Hampton, West Hampton Mall cockroaches are preserved specimens in our lab. Um, So, yeah, uh, definitely not very well adapted to Edmonton. But it is an an interesting urban myth. (laughs) Uh, And there certainly are other cockroaches around in Edmonton. Uh, German and American cockroaches are actually fairly common pests in a lot of uh, uh, buildings and restaurants, things like that. Uh, But one of the advantages we have here in Edmonton, at least uh, until climate change happens, is uh, the cold weather outside uh, kind of keeps them from moving from building to building. So they're kind of uh, uh, kept into uh, uh, just individual buildings. And the infestations aren't usually nearly as bad as they are in some other areas. So. Wow.
1: Wow, indeed. And by the way, I apologize. I should have said, let's go, Mike. About cockroach, not let's go cockroach. <laughs> it was not personal. <laughs> so now we'll hear from... Let's go, Jim, with the elm.
5: Yeah.
4: <laughs> okay, well, the elm, beautiful, tough, and native. So the this tree can take hot weather, cold weather, drought. It grows across the prairies. So Manitoba into Alberta, eastern Canada, down to Florida. Super, super tough plant. It is gorgeous. It is our premium shade tree here in Edmonton uh doesn't require a lot of care to keep it looking beautiful very durable tree so it can take all kinds of wind great structure to it and let's face it you go to a neighborhood and you say ah i want to live here because of why the trees so the shade trees add value to your property we had the elm tree in the middle of our yard on the farm. It provided a great goalpost. We kicked the football over the top. That would became our uh, our goal goalpost. That we uh, if we could kick it over there, it means we we're doing pretty darn good. Got hit by lightning twice. Talks about its resilience there, so it can take a heck of a lot. Uh, doesn't in our part of the world, we're so lucky because the tree. Again, we have an island of the American elms. Dutch elm disease is a really serious problem of elm trees. We're lucky here in Edmonton in that it hasn't shown up here yet, this beetle that creates a lot of problems. But this is, again, the premium shade tree. We have this gorgeous uh, island of amazing American elms. The tree is long-lasting. So when you look at it, there's really nothing that compares to the good old American elm.
0: Trevor knocked on wood. Um, <laughs> when you said it, Dutch elm disease isn't here. Does it count if you don't knock on elm? I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, we've doomed our city.
1: All right, thanks, Jim. And now we're going to go with Jocelyn with the interesting, st- and I'd like to know more about. And you're going to just tell me right now, the ghost magpie
5: yes i'd like to talk to you about the ghost magpie but just before i get there i just let, let's say a little bit about the magpie itself i mean we, uh, we everyone we've all seen them we i saw 10 just on the way here from from the bus stop they're everywhere in the city uh, we're very familiar uh with them um and so they're they're iconic in their own right and uh and so and and what what makes them so interesting is that, well, for one, they're with us through all the seasons. You know, we a lot of birds will disappear for the winter, but the magpies stay with us. they're They're great looking. i'm I come from out east, and we don't have magpies there. And so when I came here, it was it's always been it's a fascinating creature, uh, even with the long tail, with the iridescence. I don't know if the light strikes the tail the right way, you'll see these these interesting colors. And whatnot they keep our streets and, and our lawns clean they, in eating invertebrates and, and whatnot uh, or, or dead things for that matter and so so uh, I think they do a lot of good and, and they certainly have a, a great place to play in a city. We've pretty much created an environment for them and so if you if you don't like them well sometimes you may have to blame the environment that we've created for them. Now, for the gray magpies, now that's an interesting one. Uh, this is an Edmonton specialty. There are more gray, uh, let's call them ghosts. Actually, let's go back to ghost uh, magpies. That that was a term actually that was coined by Don Thomas with the Edmonton Journal when I started. Uh, he was interested in in this these birds that he was this one individual that he was seeing near the legislature. I think it's a it's a proper name, but the the technical term would be an incomplete albino. So this is a bird, these magpies, is, um, they have great tones where normally they would have black pigmentation and it, and that's as a result of the the amount of pigment is reduced greatly and they're, that's why we sometimes, we call them uh, imperfect albino. Um, they lose the iridescence as a result but they get blue eyes. Uh, it's due to a recessive trait, a recessive mutation. So and, and in, in order for an individual to express it, it has to have gotten that gene, that mutated, mutated gene from both its parents. And But that means that also, uh, and so the, the uh, birds that carry only one mutated gene for, or acquired from one of the parents, they will look normal. And that means that they're, Will be a lot of individuals that are carrying the gene but do not necessarily express it. So it's in it's out there in the population here in Edmonton. We have I would guess somewhere between fifteen to thirty of these gray individuals. Uh, they all over the city. Um, they new ones pop up every year, depending again on what the parents, the pairing, and and the genes that are put in uh, in into the these these. Uh, youngsters um, so they go back also there's a history they go back we I, there's a specimen at the UV that goes back to 1946 and they've been around for quite some time and we suspect that they're all descendant of one individual one ancestor that that uh, that was carrying that trait I suspect that we have so many of them uh, unlike around us, or out, I mean, outside the city and in the province, uh, because the population of magpies have, has grown to an extent where, let's say, if 1% of the birds were carrying that mutation, 1% of, of 100 is one bird, but now if you have a uh, 1,000 birds, now that 1% becomes 10, 10 birds that would show that trait. So I, I suspect that's how we got to have this 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 unique, this, this Edmonton kind of variant and so on. And I think we, we ought to be, we ought to celebrate that.
2: Wow, cool. I, I just want to say, I, I'm also from out east and I'd never seen a magpie until I moved to China and then they were all over Beijing and I didn't know what they were called because I was in China and I didn't know how to ask. <laughs> so I was just like, this is an amazing, beautiful bird. And then when I came back to Edmonton, I was like, oh my God, it's here too. So that's where I learned it's a magpie.
1: All right, thanks, Jocelyn. And okay, Dale, I know you've been waiting to defend your white-tailed prairie hare. So let's go, prairie hare.
6: <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, yes, I have. Uh, I've chosen to champion the white-tailed prairie hare, uh, sometimes known as the jack rabbit, uh, here in Edmonton. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about this amazing species and uh, why I think it best represents Edmontonians, because. Um, I, I really believe when we look at the traits of this prairie hare, uh, we share so many of them as, uh, as people from this region. And I'm gonna, gonna talk a little bit about that. So um, for those of you that, of course, live right here in Edmonton, you're gonna be very familiar with this animal. Um, the hare differs a little bit from, uh, from a wild rabbit in that it's got those longer ears and uh, those black tips at the top of their ears, a much larger animal. And of course, uh, the hare is what we have here in Edmonton as opposed to the the cottontail rabbit or some other animals we might find in southern parts of the province. Uh, It's a big animal. These guys can get up to 20 pounds. So this is an animal that can get larger than the largest of house cats. So they get pretty big. Um, Although they're they're, they're typically range somewhere between five and 10 pounds. Um, They're nocturnal. So when we do see them, it's usually bright early in the morning. uh, or in the evening, or if we're up, you know, going for maybe a, a jog through the river valley or something at uh, at nighttime, we might uh, might get a chance to see them. Um, they have lots of babies, and uh, of course, um, you know, rabbits are, uh, and hares have long been uh, symbols of fertility, and for a good reason. Um, and when they do have uh, litters of babies, uh, their young are called leverets. And they can have up to eleven of them in a single uh, in a single litter. So they can; they're very very prolific. We have lots of them around, of course. They're a great food source for uh, for many of the predators that uh, are out there, including some of the ones right here uh, that we can find in the middle of the city. Um, amazingly athletic, they can run fifty five kilometers an hour and can leap up to five meters. And unlike their rabbit counterparts, they don't really dig uh, burrows. They sort of uh, lie in these little shallow ditches that they call forms, And this is where they hang out during the course of the day. And, uh, you know, sometimes we'll walk out uh, in a suburban area here in Edmonton, we'll walk out our front door, and we'll see them, you know, underneath a, a spruce tree or something in one of these little areas where they're, they're waiting out the day, waiting for nighttime when they become active. But here really is uh, a bit about their history and, and, and why I think they best represent Edmontonians. So we first encountered them here in Edmonton um, back in the 1920s. This is when they sort of followed the settlers and made their way uh, right into the city. Um, and they have thrived ever since. The, uh, the, the city landscape provides perfect habitat for these guys. So the river valley uh, that we have here in Edmonton is the largest urban parkland in Canada. Um, we have 18,000 acres of connected green space here. And so this makes an ideal habitat for these animals to sort of stay and hide during the day sometimes, and they can come out at nighttime when, when people are less active. So it provides this, this perfect environment for them. We have so many parks here in green spaces in Edmonton, um, you know, anywhere you are in downtown, you're within 400 meters of a green space, which is perfect environment again for these, uh, for these guys and why we see so many of them. Since 1990, their populations here in Edmonton have increased 600%. So um, they really are well adapted to live in the city. And and just to sort of drive that point home, um, their population density in the city is 100 times greater than their rural counterparts. So if you're driving outside of the city of Edmonton, you're hard pressed to see a white tail prairie hare, whereas in Edmonton here, of course, we see them everywhere. Um, at Wild North, the rehabilitation organization uh, that I work with, we actually receive more than 200 injured or orphaned wild hares every year. So uh, Edmontonians encounter these guys an awful lot, including the babies, uh, by the way, that are sometimes brought into us as accidental kidnappings. Uh, people find these little uh, these little hares. And, and these hares, you know, like, like Edmontonians, are, are very... Um, are, are, are very sort of strong you know these, these guys are born unlike rabbits they're born precocial so they're born with their eyes open and within four weeks are running around uh, weaned already kind of totally on their own and even as babies mum leaves them to their own devices which is uh, which is amazing so if I were to say um, why these guys best represent Edmontonians I'd have to say um, that they're hardy. Um, these guys, uh, born with their eyes open and ready to go from the get-go, they actually turn white in the wintertime, which is amazing, they're, they're, uh, which even their southern parts of the same species don't do. But in Edmonton, they adapt for the seasons like, like we do. And um, it's interesting because we've long since known about the great traits of, of these animals. Um, in Edmonton, we have the second largest um, indigenous human population of any city in, uh, in Canada. We have um, 76,000 indigenous people. And uh, hares feature prominently in native stories and traditions. In all of these traditions, they're known as affable tricksters. You know, they're cunning, they're adaptable, they're intelligent. And uh, all traits, I think, represent
0: Edmontonians really well.
1: All right, thank you. That's very
0: persuasive. (laughs) But I'm not the one who has to be persuaded. That's Marlena. So Marlena, you have an envelope in front of you that says round one. Um, So uh, Marlena, I think, has been a a great champion of making sure that Edmontonians are more connected to uh, especially uh, the accomplishments of female Edmontonians. So round one.
1: Round one. Okay, my card here says 95 points, percent of matches won by the Edmonton grads. Oh, excellent. But I don't know what 95 points means. That's how many you get to award
0: (laughs) this round. You get to give it just the card to one person.
1: Oh, one person. Yeah. All right. Well, that makes it so much easier. Thank you very much. (laughs) And do I say why? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, before I, no, I'm actually, if I say this before, then it'll be a giveaway. So I'll give it first. So I'm giving that to you, Dale. And I want to tell you a little story about the rabbits turning white in the winter. So this is my sister-in-law, who's from Brazil. Uh, When she first came to Edmonton, she saw the brown rabbits. And uh, when winter came, she said, where did all the brown rabbits go? (laughs) That's right, for sure. So we were able to tell her about the white rabbits, which she thought was magical.
6: Right, new species just showed up in wintertime.
1: Exactly.
0: Fabulous, all right. and that's the end of round one. Yay! All right. Yay. <clears throat> Let's find out is brought to you in part by the Well Endowed Podcast made by the Emton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bunkink and produced by Lisa Pruden. And the Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds. So the podcast tells the story of how those endowments intersect with the community. And I've been doing history stories for them this year. The latest is about Prohibition and specifically how one brewery in Edmonton survived Alberta's Prohibition era. I get a bit ranty at the end, but I think it works overall. Subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. This episode of Let's Find Out is also brought to you by Unit B working. Unabee is a multi-company co-working space, focused on helping people pursue their passions and making Edmonton its creative best. You can join a tight-knit group of freelancers and startups and established organizations, all dedicated to getting things done. And besides desks and offices, Unabee members get access to a podcasting studio and meeting spaces and a kitchen and Wi-Fi and amenities like super comfortable couches. I sat on them, they're great. It's located in the historic McKenney Building on 104th Street, close to everything downtown, including the Bay LRT station. Book a tour today at unitb.ca.
2: <laughs> okay,
0: so we're going to head into round two. Um, Marlene has prepped some questions. And uh, yeah, Marlena, you get to be the the guide. You get to decide who goes
1: first. Well, we're going to continue in the the, um, fashion that we have been, so we're going to start with Mike with the cockroach. What I'm wondering, Mike, is just how common are cockroaches in Edmonton restaurants?
3: uh i don't know exactly how common. like i couldn't tell you oh 80 of restaurants have cockroaches or something that you'd have to go to alberta health services or something to find those but um they are yeah quite remarkably common um it's uh something that when health inspectors go in um, it's not something that they would immediately shut a restaurant down for so um it's uh yeah (laughs) so
1: if we put a cockroach in our soup is that a good idea
3: uh, get a th- free meal I don't know if you would actually get a free meal out of it I guess it would depend on the restaurant it wouldn't <laughs> shut the restaurant down necessarily um, and uh, the cockroaches themselves are uh, not particularly dangerous they're not going to be carrying a huge amount of diseases or anything along those lines um, but they do uh, exude oils uh, that uh, make uh, uh, anything that they infest uh, uh, basically non-edible and so that's one of the reasons why they, they become a major problem in uh, stored food. I'm gonna need areas. more
0: explanation of non-edible. <laughs> yeah, like, does it well, turn to
2: stone?
3: Well, the, no. Uh, it just uh, the the oils are um, not at all tasty, um, and uh, yeah, uh, definitely not anything you want to have on anything that you would actually have for human consumption. Um, nothing specifically dangerous to human health, but. Uh, uh, some people can have allergic reactions to it, but yeah, um, uh, but remarkably clean uh, creatures. Actually, um, certainly better than uh, most house flies, stuff like that. So they're not actually major disease vectors. Um, but uh, yeah, also because of their uh, propensity to both eat a lot of food that we consider food and to spoil that food afterwards um they're they're not something you want to have around anywhere where you're serving food and they will eat pretty much anything we we eat so
1: so they're not probably in danger of being ground up for food
3: no no cockroaches are not one of those that you would probably uh want to look at as a potential food source uh, down the line things like crickets absolutely um and lots of other insects but cockroaches probably not so much
1: so if the the <laughs> Why is the legend so enduring about the West Edmonton Mall cockroach if they really aren't there anymore?
3: Um, certainly, there probably have been sightings of cockroaches uh, since then, uh, because uh, every so often, um, German cockroaches in particular might uh, turn up at the mall, um, especially uh, near the food fairs, things like that. For years, there was also uh, uh, crickets um, that uh, came in from one of the pet stores. They were there. So uh, for many years, I know if you went in after hours, uh, after the fountains were off, you could hear crickets throughout the whole mall. Oh. <laughs> and so you could go wandering around and uh, hear them chirping away in the background. Uh, you might just and, be uh, so in phase th- one. Uh, <laughs> <Did> you- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you can kind of hear the river because I think uh, the the, uh, the pet store was actually in phase three. So I think they kind of spread from there. <laughs> Uh, but it's one of the reasons why pet stores are not uh, terribly common in most uh, malls anymore. Um, but uh, so there, there have been, uh, I think, a variety of different uh, insect stories that got it kind of uh, combined, and the the legend of a uh, unique species of cockroach in the mall is much more interesting than uh, the the reality, I guess. So. And
1: more so than crickets.
3: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Because yeah, crickets are the thing that people feed to their lizards and things. So yeah, not not nearly as interesting as a unique species. But there are other species that are well adapted to uh, Edmonton conditions, and we have a number of uh, even introduced species that have um, thrived here in Edmonton.
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa!
4: You only get to be a champion <laughs> for one. <a while. laughs> <laughs> I see you trying to sneak in another yep. insect. <laughs>
2: heard a lot of good points there, though. I think <laughs> West Edmonton Mall Cockroach's points are climbing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, and that's a tough one to defend, so that's a good one. All right, we're going to move on to elms. So, Jim, right. I live in Park Allen. Right. I've heard that that's got one of the most dense populations of elms in the city.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I was on a project where we were going around and identifying them and trying to save them, make sure they weren't going to get Dutch elm disease. So, But you say that we don't have to worry about that so much. So what's going on?
4: No, you do have to worry about it. And you have to be aware of the fact that it is always a threat, having these uh, elm beetles that vector this disease. And so you have to make sure that you're not pruning. You're pruning at the correct time of the year. So that's really off season, not during the time that they're growing because there's increases the risk. So we're, we I think we're, we're fortunate in the sense that we are fairly isolated, being a northern community. But we certainly aren't immune to the problem. But if we do it right, and we keep our eyes open for the American elms, take care of them, we're going to have them here for an awfully long time.
1: Well, I sure hope so. And um, now, what makes them more Edmonton than any other tree? Like I heard that maybe green ash, there's just as many, or.
4: Well, the American Elm, again, this this species is native. You see a, a greater population in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, but it, ha, it is in Alberta as well. So it's a native species. And again, it has so many redeeming qualities to it. It does provide habitat for magpies oh, and other wow. <laughs> food for hares. sometimes, not much for the cockroach, but uh, so, so it has got all these redeeming qualities to it. And again, if we did not have this, I can guarantee that if we did not have this tree, if every single one died here, Edmonton would not be Edmonton anymore. It looked like something completely different. We kind of take them for granted because they're so common here. Look out, I can look out the window here and I can see Elm out there across the street. So this really is the fabric of Edmonton. Having these trees here, if we didn't have them, we're not, we don't have the luxury of many other communities across North America with more choices in shade trees. Green ash, that's a dominant one, American elm, but American elm is the queen of the shade trees. Mm-hmm. And so there we've got to we got to protect them and they are just they, they they make Edmonton Edmonton.
1: Well, so how long does the queen live?
4: Can go for a long time and can go for hundreds of years. So these trees we you'll find them in in the warmer conditions maybe in the southern US, they have a shorter life, but here because of our colder climate, they don't grow as quickly, but they last a very very long time.
0: Why haven't our elm trees been engulfed by dutch elm so far
4: isolation more or less so here, here's the thing if you look at it's not there's not contiguous elms essentially we're lucky in the sense that if you go down and you look at elms in manitoba the river valleys it moves up through there we've been lucky that way so being isolated being a very northern community we we have the luxury of being for the time being free of dutch elm disease but again we don't want to squander what we have here and little message too: bring an elmwood any other kind of wood transporting it never do it never ever even contemplate bringing an elm elmwood into from other provinces or other regions into edmonton because that can bring the beetle with it
1: okay or you've ash. had your warning
4: yeah and ash as well absolutely oh. yeah so what does ash do well they can uh, the emerald ash borer which is another ah. really serious insect pest
1: okay you've had your warnings people do not bring that firewood into the no. city all right. Thank you. And we're going to move on to Jocelyn with the magpie. Now, I have a question because I've noticed magpies can be kind of, well, let's call them assertive sometimes. Are we in danger of an Alfred Hitchcock the birds type incident in Edmonton?
5: Oh, no, not anytime <laughs> soon. No. I, actually, it's interesting because you, you you bring it up. I, I get phone calls and, and people who seem actually concerned about magpies and, and this fellow um, and, and hopefully, I don't know if we'll be listening to to this uh, broadcast. But this fellow was concerned that there were there was a magpie just in just about every tree in the neighborhood, and then one would would move on to a tree where, and the bird would then leave to another tree, and. He was concerned that there might be some conspiracy going on there, that they were planning or plotting something, but I, I wouldn't go so far as thinking that that's the case. They, they are very intelligent, they, uh, and sometimes of the year, like uh, in the fall and the winter, you may have large congregations or larger groups of them, uh, but no, I mean, they're, uh, they're, they're as docile as you can get. What about my cats? Well, they're they're smart. They're smart birds. Uh, they're intelligent. You got to give it to them. Uh, uh, your cat. They're more. I think they're more interested in the cat food than they are in the cat itself. And so, and often they'll work in pairs or or in small groups, and they'll and they'll try to attract the cat, and and, and the cat usually plays along with it. And you know, you have to give it to, to the birds. There, uh, it's a bit of a dance, actually. I. I, I, I I could almost say, but the, the, yeah, the, the magpie, one magpie may try to get the cat to go his way, its way so that the other one can get to the food. I, I think that's it. You can have a, I, yeah, I, I think they can co- coexist fine.
1: And how about crows? Um, because crows and magpies seem to have a territory thing going on.
5: Well, that, that definitely, what happens in, in the bur- world, Size is a big and matters when it comes to either confrontation or uh, it's the bigger bird. The bigger bird wins usually, and so yes, usually the magpie will let will let the crow do its thing if it if it's in in the area uh, just because the crow is larger. Now it's interesting because in the last 20, 25 some years now we've had the ravens moving into the city. Now the ravens uh, thirty some years ago you'd never see them actually see them near people, and, uh, but uh, they've, they've gotten, they're getting accustomed to people, uh, they've moved in the city in a big way, in the winters we're getting these huge flocks, the ravens, they're coming from all around the, the city uh, because they find food, uh, a warmth in the city. Some of them, very few of them stay for the summer. Uh, but uh, along some of the ravines, we have, uh, or even some of the telecommunication towers in the city, we're seeing ravens evans uh, the breeding and so on. So so there's a bigger bird still that now the, the crows have to worry about. And it's a game of, yeah, it's, I guess keeping to, to yourself, to your areas and try to coexist.
1: Well, a little bit of West Side Story going on maybe. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. We're going to move on to Dale with the hare and I don't know if you know the fable the town mouse and the country mouse and I'm wondering if if there's some correlation with the town hare and the country hare why why are there so many more in the city why do they prefer the city and not the country
6: right that's a yeah that's a really great question you know um hare of course we we talked earlier about how prolific they are so they really are a a very important prey species and uh when they live in the city um they uh they create something um Called a, a like a, a prey shadow, so basically or a predator shadow, I should say. So basically, the city affords them protection um, from many of their natural predators. So here they can live in close proximity to the city and those are green spaces, uh, but because they're living in and around people that for the most part predators are very afraid of, this affords them lots of protection. So we have less animals being predated upon uh, and they're also wonderful food sources here. We talk about all the different, uh, you know, um, plants that, that, that and flowers and things that people plant to, to beautify the, the city. And uh, much to the gardener's bane sometimes, uh, these hares, uh, you know, will take advantage and eat some of these great food sources so lots of food uh, little predation means lots of hairs
1: how do we keep them out of our garden? How do we keep the Peter Rabbit thing from going
6: out? <laughs> yeah, that, you know, uh, we deal with that quite a bit at Wild North. We get a lot of calls in our wildlife hotline about about hares. And, uh, you know, as a rule, people love to see them around. They're, they're beautiful animals. They, um, if you see one regularly, it, it's probably the same one. People are under the misconception that there's uh, they're seeing different hares all the time, but they're actually very habitual. Um, so it's probably the same hair getting into your garden and, and eating your plants or your flowers. So some of the strategies uh, that can be employed, for example, um, for hares are um, we would recommend uh, in some cases, that you would go to uh, like a hunting store like Cabela's or a place where you can purchase a synthetically produced Coyote urine and uh, this stuff is used of course by hunters to attract coyotes But if employed uh, if put into a spray bottle and employed properly and put in a little spray around your garden That's sometimes enough to deter the hares. So they'll smell that predator around and say, you know There's a coyote in the area. It's not worth being here and maybe they'll move on to your neighbor's garden
1: <laughs> That's good advice <laughs>
0: <laughs> We've taken the opposite approach in our house. Um my husband just built a new fence and he made sure to leave a little like hole at the bottom of the uh, fence Allowing them to come legs. in and help
6: themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. Nice. Well people love them, you know, and and uh, and I think like 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 anything else, you know, um it, it's, it's lovely to see animals around. And, and I, and I from, from Jocelyn's champion, the magpies, you know what, uh, it, it may not bode well for my cause, but they have to be one of my favorites. I love those, all those corvids, the crows and the magpies, brilliant birds and, and love to around, but uh, hares are the same way. You know, people love to have them around and, and most people are pretty accommodating when it comes to living in harmony with our wild neighbors.
2: That's true. So hares, I remember several years ago when I moved to Edmonton, uh, the hares, they're so big. They're like incredible. But I was on the U of A campus and I just saw them literally boxing. Yes. And, then, and I just don't know if I feel good condoning like <laughs> that in today's day and age, right. like an, an animal with that kind of behavior.
6: Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and it, it's 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 kind of like a domestic abuse thing. It, it usually happens when the male meets the female and it's a behavior that happens prior to breeding and they stand up on their hind legs and they box similar to what you'd expect of, of, a, of a kangaroo or, or type species. Uh, that usually lasts for a few minutes and until they get down to the real business. But that's what we're seeing usually when we see them boxing
2: yeah okay so i'm glad i didn't stick around
1: (laughs) (laughs) and there's by the
6: way so many on on the university campus um we get calls all the time at wild north to rescue these hares there's hundreds of people will walk within three feet of a hair and by virtue of the fact that it's not moving it must be injured of course as soon as we show up and pull out a net it's gone right (laughs) it's like oh not injured at all and so they, they become very you know habituated for sure okay
2: and jocelyn i think um I think I'm, I'm asking the question that I think everyone's really asking, which is, aren't magpies too smart for their own good?
5: Well, well I'm glad to hear that. But, uh, I mean, I, I think the magpies would be, would be happy to hear that. Uh, yeah, if people get that perception, I guess uh, they might dislike them. I guess thinking that they, these birds can do a lot of things that, that they don't like.
2: But you still want to defend them?
5: oh, oh I defend them anytime I, they, they're they're a fascinating creature this time of year it's interesting because uh, uh, you'll see them cache they'll you'll see them hide food it, it's interesting they're, they're s- smart but but uh, I can the way they they hide so they' they're hiding food for the winter the winter is about to come and they they'll go maybe to your feeders grab a peanut and they'll put it on the ground and then they'll grab some 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 grass and so on and they'll put on it uh, never mind that grass. Will, or that part will probably be covered by snow in a, in a few months from now. And and never mind that, I don't know that they'll be able to rec- to to remember exactly where they they hid it in this lawn. Uh, but but they got the right idea. I mean, they they know to prepare for the winter and and the need to to stash some food if there's some available around.
2: Which is more than many humans. So <laughs> yeah,
1: that's
0: true. Okay. It's it's a good thing I'm not the judge again because I am totally biased. Magpies I, I'm just enchanted by them we have a little sculpture out front, this little bike sculpture you might have seen when you came in and we like more than once caught them playing games. Like six of them will chase each other around the sculpture and around our signs. We found a magpie sleeping on our lawn the other morning with its like head tucked into itself and um we laid out a little like bowl of porridge and it came and ate the whole thing. it's i'm just totally charmed by them so
5: well the by the it's interesting because this is a bit of it it's a love-hate relationship and and uh, and you know their goods and their bads but it, but the people within the city are often divided you know, there are people who love the magpie. A lot of people love the magpie. But a lot of them also dislike them. And mainly from the noise that, you know, in in late in the summer or in the summer when the young come out and they're very vocal and they want to be fed and so on, they, they can get a little, they can get on your nerve.
0: Can I throw one more question in directly related to the sound thing? Thank you. Which is, I wonder, like, is part of the reason why magpies and crows and ravens do so well in the city is that we've crowded out the acoustic niches for so many other birds, but we leave a niche for our own voice. And magpies and crows and ravens kind of speak in the same register as us. Does that have anything to do with why they do well in cities?
5: Uh, they're they are birds of the open country. You th- uh, maybe less so the ravens, and and so yeah, their the sound frequencies do do work better than it, it, they would in a forest, for instance. But but I, I'd have to say that still remains to be seen with, yeah, to, to be looked at. Huh. Interesting idea.
1: I was gonna say, with the noise of the magpies, I grew up on a farm, Southern Alberta, and my father, as a farmer, would sometimes take his power naps in the afternoon, and if the magpies were screaming outside, he would get up and yell at them to shut up. Like, he, they would make him very angry.
5: <laughs> I, I've had a, I've had someone call me, complaining that a that a raven was responding to that individual's snoring during the day. That this individual was working during at night and sleeping during the day and he, he was he, he could he was asking me what he could do to get this raven to stop <laughs> responding to his snoring. <laughs>
2: Okay, so there are obviously some very strong opinions on magpies. <laughs> <laughs> and we've heard some <laughs> and we've heard some strong cases for the West Emmonal cockroach and cockroach in general. The American elm, the prairie hare. And uh, Marlena, it's time to allot the points. Who won round two?
1: All right, I'm opening the envelope. Thank you. And the envelope, oh my goodness, one thousand nine hundred and twenty uh, points? <laughs> and of course, nineteen twenty was the year Gladys Reeves founded her photography studio. And it's interesting that you mentioned Gladys Reeves because I was thinking of of awarding this to the Elm this round anyway, but it's really appropriate because Gladys Reeves and her tree planting committee in the 1920s planted tons of trees in Edmonton, and I'm sure they planted elms as well. And and they had, uh, she also was the first female president of the, what is one of my favorite societies, the Edmonton Horticultural and Vacant Lot Garden Society. So the elm gets 1,920
2: points! Okay, we're going to move right into (laughs) round three, the final round. You've heard your opponents making their case for their species. Now you can give your final rebuttal, cut them down to size, show why your species is the most endemic and the most iconic for Edmonton. Uh, You'll have one minute.
1: Mike.
3: Oh man, yeah, I'm not sure uh, how I can defend my mythical creature here. Um, (laughs) Can I use mine to defend the elm?
1: Do you want to concede at this point?
3: <laughs> I, I could concede on the cockroach, or I could uh, talk a little bit about uh, some of the other insects, uh, sow bugs, and uh, jumping spiders, and all those other things. that Do you have, want to be uh...
1: team insect now?
3: Sure, I'll be team insect. <laughs> yeah, sow bugs, and jumping spiders, and uh, centipedes, most of which, yeah, those several of those aren't even insects. Um, all yeah, uh, uh non native species that have become really well adapted and in some cases are now, uh, sort of the dominant species in uh, a lot of the areas around here. So, uh, seven spotted ladybird beetles that are probably driving out some of our native ones, um, things like that, uh, really well adapted. Uh, sidewalk carabbits, uh, black ground beetles. Um, we used to build Lego houses for them.
0: So. <laughs> Mike Jenkins has totally thrown in the towel On the web
1: <laughs> But some great bug stories Thank you Okay, Jim
4: Okay, well, uh, American elm I mean, um, sequesters carbon These other things don't do that, right? You know, so, you know, there you go That's good, we have great souls here in Edmonton Here, It does that, uh, it's an interesting species It's a hermaphrodite It has both male and female flower parts um, So it is... Uh, a wonderful tree. It is. Uh, it was used in uh, farm houses uh, to show the cleanliness. They would take the wood of the tree and they would buff it up, and they the American elm had this nice white wood. It would showcase how great a job typically the farm wife did as far as keeping her house clean. Uh, without the American elm. Do you think there'd be any magpies around here? that they use it for shelter, for nesting? What about the hair it hides behind the elm tree? Cockroach will give you a break on the cockroach. It doesn't hide behind there. So, I mean, really, this is the species. This is the one. Without the American elm, Edmonton would be really in sad shape.
1: Whoa. That's a tough opponent. Okay,
5: Justin, you so have your work cut like out for you.
2: the like the social justice warrior. <laughs> yeah, really pandering to the crowd. <laughs>
5: Well, the city may be in a sad shape, maybe a hundred years from now, you know, if these diseases make make their way here, which they often do, unfortunately. Uh, we've created an environment for the magpie. Uh, many of you uh, may not know that actually once when, when the uh, the magpies used to be associated with large ungulates, and, uh, in, and in the prairie here, we think of the bisons. And when the bisons were taken out of the, the landscape, uh, actually, the, 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 the magpies did not do too well, there. The, the numbers decreased dramatically, the range uh, re- retracted quite a bit. And so we're, Edmonton is a bit of, has a relictual, in a sense, populations of magpie there. They're thriving here. And then we have these gray, these ghost magpies, this this Edmonton specialty, they're unique there. Uh, I, I think everyone would like to see them if they haven't already, uh, they're, they're, they're fascinating creatures. Uh, if I could point out, just on the heartstrings, a magpies are living dinosaurs. <laughs> That's
2: a great wrap-up. That, that goes straight to Chris's heart.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're getting hot now, so Dale, finish it off.
6: All right, so I'm just going to say that this debate is about wit, Uh, represents Edmontonians the best. So when we look at things like elm trees and magpies, you know, they they are here in Edmonton, of course, but they're also thriving in many other big cities. Uh, The white-tailed prairie hare, uh, we have the highest population density of this species in any major city in Canada, right here in Edmonton. Uh, They've increased their numbers 600% over the years, so clearly they enjoy the green space and things like the rest of us Edmontonians. They share a lot of the same characteristics and traits we do. Heck, they even like uh, multicultural foods. We all love the Heritage Festival. These guys have twice as many taste buds as we do so they love you can imagine that the, the vegetarian fare for uh, for hares is fantastic um but these guys you know they feature in a lot of uh, native stories and folklore and uh, I, I think just in this region going back uh, you know thousands of years this is a creature right in this very region that has really become iconic so i have to stick to my guns and uh, though i love the magpies uh, i have to say that if we're talking about something that reflects um edmontonians it has to be the white-tailed prairie air
1: Wow, that was some excellent (laughs) lightning round.
0: Okay, so Marlena has a third envelope here with uh, the round three points. And um, whoever has the most points after she has awarded this final batch um, wins the... So uh, you get a trophy that is... um, solid gold trophy that we've inherited from uh, speaking municipally when they had a Jeopardy game. Uh, You'll also win a map of shipwrecks on Prince Edward Island and a a gift certificate to the Edmonton bookstore. So Marlena, um, can you please tell us how many points are in this envelope?
1: Okay, here comes the third envelope. One thousand Wait wait a minute. 157,200 points! (laughs) Don Iverson's Twitter follower count. <laughs> oh, is that
6: true? Uh-huh. <laughs> well,
1: I learned something, <laughs> and um, I have to give this to the magpie. Oh, <gasps>
0: really? Wow! Yeah. Wow! Total upset. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> what and why?
1: why? Because the magpie is. I think like we see it everywhere the hair oh, oh honestly that's it's a close oh my goodness okay this was really hard
6: <laughs> no take backs <laughs> i thought judging
1: was gonna be easier than being the expert no I, actually you know that the magpie the hair the elm even the cockroach i mean these were all great and um I was trying to be fair, okay. I was trying to give one card to everybody, but there's not four cards. <laughs> <laughs> my, mine <didn't> actually exist. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, the magpie—it's dear to my heart as well. Yeah.
0: Um, can I uh, just throw one thing in there that this—what you're saying about magpies—is reminding me of? And this was uh, this uh, th- this is kind of the reason why I picked your question is because I, um, I wanted to make people uh, talk about this book, Crow Planet. So this book is by Leanna Lynn Hopt. Uh, it's called Crow Planet: Essential Wisdom. From the urban wilderness, most of the book is very generous in in terms of like encouraging us to like look around us, appreciate the wildlife that's in our cities. But there's one part that's just a rant that I, I really um, I really appreciate. She's talking about um, uh, people who who sort of get frustrated with. Um, magpies and crows in cities and um, how disconnected our frustration can be from the habitat that we create for these things. The following letter about backyard crows recently appeared on our neighborhood paper, the West Seattle Herald. Hitchcock, where art thou? West Seattle is the place for your next horror film. All the joy of feeding birds and squirrels, peanuts, and wild bird seed is over. Bullies from the sky with sharp as attack radar swoop in five, ten, fifteen at a time to carry off all my offerings. No random acts of kindness for others, not in my backyard anyway. These are big menacing vultures. What can a bird feeder do? So the author says. I must shamefully admit that my immediate reaction utterly lacked compassion. Idiot, I said aloud. I mean, Honestly, the woman surrounds her house with grass, tosses out handfuls of peanuts and wild bird seed, whatever that means, then wonders why there are crows, animal she seems not to recognize as a wild bird. She finds joy in feeding an invasive plague of bushy-tailed diurnal rat-like rodents yet has nothing but derision for a native corvid, and I can only wonder what acts of kindness she imagines a proper bird might offer, but then I realize I ought to be more understanding. Obviously this woman loves animals, some of them anyway, and she means well. People who feed birds normally do so because they think that putting out feeders is what people who love birds do. Bird feeding can be done well, but the commercial enormous commercial bird seed and feeder industry keeps it a secret that unless they're scrupulously cared for, feeders often invite disease, non-native birds, and rats. Blah blah. blah. She go, goes on with all these things that, like, if if someone just paid more attention, maybe they'd appreciate the crows more. Surely, if this better, if this woman were better informed, she would engage her love for birds in a more ecologically viable manner. Armed with this Bodhisattva-like mindset, I revisit the letter, but I'm disappointed to discover that I fare no better. Idiot, I whi- hear myself whisper <laughs> a bit more softly, at least. So I, I, I love that frustration that she reaches at this book, but I also love taking a more generous approach of, of, uh, of, of trying to build our understanding of, of how we build habitat. And I learned so much uh, in this episode about the type of habitat that we build for different species, um, which I, I've learned a word for the species that we live with, um, that, that come along with us. Uh, synanthropes. Has anyone ever heard that oh, word? Yeah. yeah, I love that. Um, so thanks for teaching us more about our synanthropes. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, nice. Thank yeah. you. Uh, and your uh, oh, trophy. The
5: trophy. <laughs> <deserve it. laughs> Your pirate map?
0: Yeah, you. Or shipwreck map, uh,
1: which was oh, used by. We've uh, got a lot to do with over. Yeah. <laughs> <yeah, right. laughs> <laughs> Maybe
5: they had already decided. To so I, I do give credit. Thank thank <laughs> okay, thanks, everybody. Nice.
2: Thank you for listening to our live game show. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow, Fraser, that's me, and Chris Chang and Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher, or you can find them where I do, letsfindoutpodcast.com. And that's also
0: where you can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, I try to drop in news about new episodes and live events and cool apps and updates uh, like our book club this season. And we're on our last book now. So if you're listening today, October 30th, um, you'll hear the last time that we are reading a book uh, that ties into some of these big ideas about humans and nature. And it's not a coincidence. We are talking about Crow Planet by Leanda Lynn Uh, Meetup details are on our website. Hey, Chris in the present here with some breaking news and thanks. Thanks to Marlena Wyman, of course, and Mike Jenkins and Dale Guino and Jocelyn Udon and Jim Hole. And we just heard that Jim and his whole family have actually sold the greenhouse business. Also, we have a date for our season-ending live show now about how we make nature. It's December 1st at 2 p.m. at the Almanac. Tickets available soon.
2: Thanks to Taproot Edmonton and the Edmonton Historical Board. And thanks to everyone who's been a supporter of this podcast, especially Finn, at you, Finn. Original music for this podcast is by our own most endemic species, Doug Hoyer. Until next time, keep your questions coming.